Welcome to the Race and Health podcast. Today's episode is on caste and environmental justice. Uh, we've got three wonderful guests today. Uh, first up, we have Dr. Malini Ranganathan, who's an associate professor at the American University School of International Service in Washington, D.C., where she teaches and conducts research on environmental racism and environmental casteism, particularly as these relate to urban areas. Uh, next, we have Mr. Kanthi Swaroop, who's a PhD candidate at the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, where he engages with the problem of manual scavenging through urban sociology and policy theories. And finally, we have uh, Ms. Mita Hawke, our race and health representative, uh, with a background in global health, development and public health. Uh, Mita, can I come to you first? Can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to discuss casteism, environmental justice and health? Sure. So. Here at the Race and Health podcast, we talk a lot about people's experiences and their pursuit of health through the perspective of racism and xenophobia. These perspectives have added depth to issues that were painted as simple or unintentional with easy fixes when in actuality they're a bit more complex. In addition to racism, we also cite xenophobia and colonialism to add breadth to these discussions because these terms have helped us articulate how systems of power structure the way we value people and thus how we distribute political and economic resources. For example, in previous podcasts, we've seen the importance of anti-racist thinking in environmental justice and advocacy, how seemingly apolitical decisions such as purchasing meat from your local shop can actually be a political move and can have political implications. So we've been able to give depth to why your postcode matters, why health policy still operates in a racist way, and why these differences aren't coincidental. Today, I wanted to explore the concept of caste and casteism so that we can expand our language and how we understand these systems of power. Simply put, Caste is a form of social hierarchy and organization, notably based on labor and religious caste. And I think Malini will expand on this in a little bit, as she will with casteism. Again, very simply put, is the oppression of non-dominant castes. From this perspective, and in combination with how we think and understand racism, xenophobia, and colonialism, we can shed light on these intersecting forms of injustice and how the underlying power dynamics that fuel them can come together in the health disparities that we see. Wonderful, thank you. Um, Malini, can I come to you next? If you can elaborate on these relationships. Um, many of our listeners won't know uh, about caste or caste systems. Can you um, explain a little bit about what, what this is? Caste is a religiously sanctified and institutionalized system of inequality. It is practiced largely by Hindus. Surprisingly, it has also crept into other religions entangled with Hinduism on the subcontinent, namely Christianity, Islam, and Sikhism. As India's foremost civil rights and anti-caste leader, Dr. Baba Saheb Ambedkar put it, caste is a form of graded inequality. This graded inequality is dictated by birth and dogamy. That is to say, strict rules restricting marriage to closed groups, and is also dictated by ritual notions of purity and pollution. So, Dilan, those at the so called higher end of the ladder of purity, the mm. Brahmins, think of themselves as ritually pure and engage in jatis or occupations such as priesthood, traditionally speaking, and today, education, engineering, business, bureaucracy, and law. It is this segment that has hoarded landed wealth, 
the privileges of higher education and lucrative professions. Those at the lowest end of the spectrum, conversely, a broad swath and heterogeneous grouping referred to as Dalits and Bahujans, or bureaucratically speaking, the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes, are condemned to jobs deemed mm. polluted. They were historically forbidden to own property and undertake education and are forced even today to do so-called polluting work, such as agricultural labor, sanitation and manual scavenging, and skinning and clearing dead bodies, both human and non-human. So the driving ideology of caste is Varnashrama Dharma, a precept of Brahmanical patriarchy, or let's just say Hinduism as we know it. And it's a precept that basically society must perform certain duties given by a fourfold hierarchy consisting of Brahmins, as I mentioned at the top, followed by Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, Shudras, and a fifth Varna, uh, which used to be called Panchamma, that is to say a fifth, being so subordinate, so outcast, they are not even included in this fourfold system. So it's a very complex, ancient system of inequality um, that has been variously recalibrated through colonialism, nationalism, you know, and even more recently through the Hindutva or the Hindu nationalist project. And it's fair to say this is structured Indian or the Indian subcontinent societies for centuries, right? Yes, millennia in, indeed. So mm. it's a very, very ancient system and its origins, you know, can be found and traced to Hindu scripture. Many of these laws in terms of mm. pollution and purity and even punishments that are supposed to be meted out for transgressing these laws are given in the Manushastra, which is a very, very ancient text that lays out the caste system, but it also appears in other texts. Thank you. And, and Kanthi, would you like to come in on this question too? Yeah, thanks for the question. So caste has been treated as an archaic system, and it's considered as bygone past and not anymore relevant in India. To explain caste is not an easy task. One way to understand is that it is a reality. Caste is a reality. Caste fixes the status of each person at birth into caste, themselves organized into a notionally unalterable hierarchy, and the caste itself is sustained by prohibiting intercaste marriages. Hierarchy in the caste, in Dr. Ambedkar's aphorism, is caste is an ascending scale of reverence and descending scale of contempt. The lower extremities here are untouchables or current Dalits or scheduled castes that they are identified by the government. So while untouchability is abolished, it is being widely practiced, but not much in the physical touch, no touch. But discrimination, discriminating based on your property, region, dietary habits, surname, occupation, or even the amount of marks you secured in the competitive exams. So caste, although is found to be a complex institution, it is also simultaneously weakened and revived by economic and political forces. Caste, in a big way, contributes to the persisting India's socio-economic and human capital disparities and has major impacts on subjective well-being. But at the same time, the effects of caste travel along because they are not locational anymore. They travel from the village to the city and into virtually all markets. Caste persists even in the age of market because of its advantages. Its discriminations allow opportunity holding for many others. The government of India considers caste problem is settled because of the provision of affirmative action and other development measures, such that no special measures and international attention is required for it. 
and intergovernmental agenda such as sustainable development goals because of this government stand on caste that it has settled matter and there is it is not relevant anymore do not emphasize caste as a fundamental determinant of social exclusion inequality poverty and discrimination despite 260 million people suffer from discrimination based on caste worldwide pressing on on that why does caste matter to environmental inequities and specifically in relation to urban areas one of the most insidious aspects of caste delan is the denial of caste just like in the west those with white power and privilege say things like what's race got to do with it or why do you mm. reduce everything to race as a way of shutting down the conversation while continuing to garner privileges from white supremacy similarly in india the most caste privileged are also caste denialists but you don't have to listen to me dilan let's look at the hard data on social inequities and i'll come to urban environmental inequities in a moment during india's colonial period in 1910 the brahmins constituted a mere 3% of the population of the then madras presidency yet they held a staggering 97 97% of positions in the bureaucracy and the judiciary they along with other dominant castes ruled supreme in terms of agrarian landed wealth which they were able to channel into english education and urban white collar jobs so the roots mm. of urban inequality have been a long time in the making and there's a huge literature to show how british colonialism and capitalism benefited and recruited the upper castes now coming to a snapshot of the urban today the picture does not look all that different from what i just said brahmins and dominant castes say constitute about 10% of the population but they still hold around 80 to 90% of the total wealth even today brahmins are not more than 5% of india's population total right but they live in segregated well-serviced neighborhoods that make claims to vegetarian purity in order to justify their separation from dalits and muslims who are beef eating and that therefore impure a scholar gautam raj konda has shown that the majority of urban dalits in india today live in slums informal poorly serviced settlements my research in bangalore and southern india studies how caste supremacy namely brahmanism drives segregation and environmental injustices so for instance because dalits live in slums they are the ones who are burdened by poor access to water and sanitation to and therefore when there is monsoonal downpour or, or of course mm. increasing due to erratic uh, climate patterns those are the areas that get flooded so from an environmental standpoint slums and informal areas you know have poor drainage have more frequent flooding these are also areas targeted for encroachment removal drives and green evictions as i've written about recently with two bengaluru anti caste activists isaac arul selva and kj siddharth so this is what you can think of as environmental casteism right it's this the disproportionate burden uh born by the caste burden for of environmental and social mm-hmm. harms the denial of casteism right uh, because of course there's this sense of privilege that operates among those that have a uh, good infrastructure and services and professions right and and then the privileges that accrue to them um, be- because of these layered processes 
Thank you. And and Kanthi, if you can expand on that um, and talk about the intersections between caste and class and sanitation labor. Yeah, caste has played a decisive role in the representation of sanitation work over two millennia, beginning with the prescription of sweeping and dealing with ordure to chandals. Chandals are the current untouchables. The caste-based determination of the sanitation workforce provides the backdrop to nearly every document in the archives of the sanitation departments of colonial municipalities. It was axiomatic that Dalits would be mobilized to carry out additional tasks on top of sweeping and conservancy work for which they were appointed, notably uh, disposing of uh, human bodies and uh, animal carcasses, even including infectious ones. And even during the COVID-19 times, the sanitation workforce was recruited and even conscripted across the country, whether it is rural or in the urban setup, to take the additional task on top of the regular sanitation work. In fact, Gandhi, the nationalist figure, his extensive discourse on the bhangi and his sacred duty. Bhangi is used as a word to denote the sanitation worker now has become a slur word and cannot use anymore. It was banned. But uh, during the nationalist time, so Gandhi extensive discourse on Bangi and his sacred duty further reified the link between Dalits and the sanitation work, not only in the representational practices of mainstream politics, but also in the planning and the policy in the post-colonial India. And it remains even today the de facto situations in municipalities, virtually all sanitation workers or all Dalits. And of the record, municipal authorities confirm that there are few non-scheduled castes as supervisors and other roles, and recently enrolled to the municipal payrolls. But they do not actually wield the proof, but subcontract the work to Dalits. Again, sanitation workers, particularly talking in the context of health problems, they suffer from trauma and uh, debilitating diseases. Men who clean septic tanks and sewage drains die on average by 32. The cause of that is predominantly occupational asphyxiation in a septic tank, drowning in sewage, tuberculosis, cholera, meningitis, and various cancers. And the elementary compensation guaranteed by the legislations of 1993 and 2013 is rarely ever provided to the workers' family. Men are forced into one of the most dangerous forms of sanitation labor in the world. They must descend into the septic tank at the end of a rope and empty out empty out its contents with a bucket. They must dive into sewage drains, holding their breath and clear blockages with bare hands. In fact, one of my author and I recently written a paper and we argue that this is a genocidal level of violence that is visited upon the most discriminated. Often sanitation workers are looked on upon because they often are Dalits of the lower caste predominantly. So they, were, they are never included in the mainstream discussions. Whatever they do, their role is invisible until and unless they come to collect the waste, etc. But during the COVID time, uh, they, they were placed in the list of uh, frontline warriors. But at the same time, to uh, fill some of the gaps where, for example, when there, is, there, there are no sanitation workers in one of the neighborhoods, so they went to the Dalit neighborhoods to ask somebody to become sanitation worker temporarily. Because they assume uh, that this, this, this is a work only Dalits can do. In fact, sanitation workers during the COVID were asked to uh, bury the infectious bodies or even to cremate them. Across the municipalities, it was a case. Sanitation workers, uh, in general, most of them are contractual. So they are not brought into the ambit of protecting them with the health insurance. 
And 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 what what health outcomes do we see from this, and how does that differ between different casts? Absolutely, Dilan. Uh, so Kanti has uh, really outlined some uh, very crucial health outcomes, um, not just of poor sanitation, but also of sanitation work itself, right? Especially the work of manual scavenging. Um, and um, here I want to give a shout out actually to um, a very important mm-hmm. article that mm-hmm. Kanti and his colleague Shivashankar wrote, um, which um, basically issues the charge of genocide uh, and the fact that there's been um, institutionalized neglect, uh, willful neglect of the deaths of manual scavengers. Um, and, and this is a very important charge, I think. You know, in addition to the health outcomes that Kanti mentioned, Lack of access to sanitation also um, has violent spin-off effects. Dalit girls and women are targeted for sexual violence because they mm. lack secure spaces for sanitation. So, for instance, they uh, are very much exposed to the risk of sexual violence um, at night um, in places where there's not proper electrification, you know, going out at night to potentially uh, relieve themselves, you know, they're exposed to sexual violence. Um, then coming to what I mentioned earlier, uh, take the example of, of flooding and lack of drainage uh, in mm. informal neighborhoods, uh, both center city slums as well as informal peripheral neighborhoods. This has its own health problems, Dilan, right? So you have mosquito-borne yep. diseases uh, because of stagnant water mm. due to flooding, or you have cholera, um, again, due to cross-contamination with sewage. So all of these, um, you know, caste-driven environmental injustices are also caste-driven health injustices, right? We cannot disentangle the two. And these are fundamentally the denial of human dignity, uh, of humanity. Let's, 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 Let's be frank here, right? And so so I just wanted to add uh, those to, those uh, those dimensions to what uh, Kanti has already said. Um, another issue that hasn't been raised yet but is really important to mention is the issue of food and nutrition, um, which has become really politicized. Mm-hmm. Mita mentioned this at the opening of her comments, right? You you never know what can happen. You know, if if, if for instance, it's just a question of of going to your local butcher or meat meat store, right? What is the politics around that? Absolutely, right? We see what's happening now is the project in India um, of furthering a Hindu rashtra, okay? A Hindu a Hindu nation, a Hindu social order of the country. You have mobs of Hindutva cow vigilantes known as Gau Rakshas who have attacked Dalits and Muslims for skinning cows in the last few years, right? Uh, and, and blaming them for having killed the cow when in fact they're just actually doing the society a favor by removing the carcass, right? And and these mobs are emboldened by political leadership. So of course you have what people call slow violence, which is a steady etching away of life years and life chances through the kinds of examples uh, that Kanti gave. You have fast violence, right? You have the the lynching, you have the the death, you have the killing of of, of people happening openly now. Um, so these are also important to keep in mind. That's a, that's a very interesting concept. I haven't heard of slow and fast violence. All of you have talked about the political nature of this. Um, and I wonder if I can address the question to all three of you, actually, that what are the policy avenues or solutions or forms of activism that exist for addressing or resisting caste-based inequities? 
we have to understand these things from a community centric, from an individual experiential point of view, and that to approach any effective, sustainable, and equitable policy solution, we have to listen to those who experience it. Speaking from my privilege and from my U.S. perspective, um, this is for me about how I can better train myself, train my education, and train my thinking to receive and identify different types of oppression, and particularly how can we identify caste and caste-driven violence, not only reading international politics, again, from my U.S. perspective, in not only my research um, and in my academics and in my livelihood, but also in my own offices and in my own life. How do these things have a political effect? Yes, absolutely. There's many things that are needed, um, starting with some really concrete things, but of course, which are politically quite difficult. There's a real need for a, a, a caste census, right, to really take stock of uh, what is the economic, social, educational, material statuses of different castes. And, and what's mm -hmm. happening is a kind of purposeful, in intentional hiding of this data or a unwillingness to account for differences in caste. That will then pave the way to greater representation of Dalit and Bahujan um, castes in policy-making, decision-making, right? Who's at the table? Who's making decisions? Because what you have now is a bunch of decision makers, not necessarily from the oppressed caste backgrounds, making decisions on behalf of those groups. And whenever you have that situation in any polity, right, then you're going to have a disconnect. Um, and so you need that representation. And of course, you have the sphere of electoral politics where you have strong Bahujan candidates, you know, contesting elections. Um, and that's one avenue, but you also need that to increase in the, uh, the bureaucracy and the judiciary. The judiciary is extremely Brahmin in uh, India, right? Extremely upper caste. Stepping back and thinking more broadly, you know, I return to the words of Baba Saheb Ambedkar, uh, who I opened with, who encouraged his followers to convert to Buddhism to escape caste and also, you know, encouraged them to educate, agitate and organize. You know, I'm a firm, I'm an educator, I'm a firm believer in education and the revolutionary potential of education, Milan um, and Mita. And so I believe that anti-caste education must be an imperative from the primary school level. You know, just like in the U.S. now, uh, schools, my older son is eight, my, my younger son is uh, is five, but schools are now introducing, um, you know, basic history on uh, racial justice, anti-racist education, right? I think similarly, schools in India have a moral obligation to do this. This means that starting from the school children age, they, they, they need to not just learn about Mahatma Gandhi, who, you know, let's be clear, is certainly lionized and claimed to be, you know, a, a hero. But, but let's be clear, had, had, had conservative views on caste, right? And um, I think decentering the kind of um, Gandhian emphasis, but, but and, and also learning about the works of Ambedkar, of Phule, of Savitribai, of Periyar, right? This kind of education needs to be uh, instituted and, of course, carried through as a, a lifelong pursuit to unlearn, relearn. And, and I think that we all have actually a lot of, of learning to do on that front. On the, the words agitate and organize, um, which were also Baba Saheb's words, you know, this is about multiple strategies, legal and constitutional activism. The constitution was actually of India, was written by 
Baba Saheb Ambedkar and contains uh, some some you know very emancipatory ideals and so really pushing forward the legal front through mass cultural movements so for instance um, you know movements that are led by Dalit Ban Bahujan groups right uh, cultural movements that are about uh, anti hate and anti caste politics um, and, and led from below that that are you know in the literary sphere in the uh, in the sphere of music and um, other kinds of cultural realms um, is you know it's it's about building that consciousness. Thank you. Um, my children are the same age as yours, and I, I entirely agree that the education has to come in right from the start of school yes. and then throughout into higher education as well. Thank you, and Kanthi, the same question to you. I mean, what what can we do? So um, the policy avenues, first of all, need to be shifted. They should focus on uh, rights-based discussion. And they also need to uh, pave a way for talking about the ways to professionalize the sanitation work for the sanitation worker. They need to bring sanitation worker into the center and then talk the specifics of caste and other associated things. Because so far, they're talking about the sanitation work, but not the worker. And then you talk about sanitation work, and you also talk about other specifics. And 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 you also, we, we, it is also important to uh, do an extensive discussion on risk the sanitation worker encounter in their everyday profession. The labor part has been stressed and focused very much. And it is important for any new policy that is supposed to address so to also include the risk and a proper study to include the, the, the risk. And civil society earlier was not interested in talking about caste or the sanitation work. Uh, therefore, there was an issue and they are very much into the Gandhian understanding of sanitation work. Uh, that is a classic debate. Gandhi asked everybody to become sanitation uh, worker and uh, Dr. Ambedkar says no. So, so even uh, everybody has a choice to become a sanitation worker or a scavenger, but uh, for 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 uh, for for bungies, so they're born as sanitation workers, they're born as scavengers. You cannot undo you cannot undo this. So uh, upper caste have a choice not to become sanitation worker, etc. Even the civil society organization should feel morally accountable for many other things they do. Uh, so far, the civil society is active, but only the lower caste civil society organizations tend to focus on this issue, but not very many uh, upper caste civil society organizations. Thank you. Um, I, I wonder if I can just come go around everyone just one last time with any final thoughts uh, before we wrap up. Um, Malini? Well, thank you for hosting this conversation, Dilan. Um, I do think that this is uh, one of the most important priorities uh, right now uh, in India and the wider subcontinent. Um, and, and, and as I said earlier, you know, different fronts um, of action and change uh, need to really take this issue on. Definitely agree. I think my intentions with bringing this topic to the podcast is very much bringing more awareness to the issue and not confining the issue to India or to the subcontinent, but rather how can we stand in solidarity around the world? As we've seen in the past year, countries around the world standing in solidarity with anti-racist movements, how can we bring that energy to this in a way that isn't already there? Thank you. 
thank you. And, and these conversations we need to have everywhere, I think, beyond the Indian subcontinent. Um, Kanthia, any final thoughts? Yeah, thanks for organizing the session. Uh, we want to interna internationalize the discourse on the caste mm. and the sanitation work or the conditions that provide the manual scavenging to perpetuate. Uh, because if there is an international uh, pressure on the country or even on the government, and we believe that it might move them to take necessary steps to rehabilitate the existing workers or to address this issue as uh, as soon as possible. We hope uh, this podcast will you know, reach international audience, uh, apart from the Indian uh, audience, that way to uh, get as much as solidarity from the international um, community. Thank you to my guests, Marlini Ranganathan, Kanthi Swarup and Mita Hawk. This episode was produced by Mita Hawk and Juhi Um. Editing by Sam Gomberg and music by Mita Hawk. For more information about race and health, please visit our website at www.raceandhealth.org.